Hello and welcome to the Heart Podcast. My name is James Rudd. This is part one of two podcasts which focus on cardio-oncology. In both podcasts, I'm joined by Dr. Arjun Ghosh, who is a cardiologist from Barts Hospital in London and is a specialist in cardio-oncology. I hope you enjoy part one of the podcast. Many thanks indeed, Arjun, for joining me on the podcast today. This has been a much-requested episode all about cardio-oncology. Perhaps you can uh, start off by telling the audience what exactly we mean by cardio-oncology. Thanks, James, for having me. Uh, Very happy uh, to be here uh, with you and the listeners. Um, I guess uh, the easiest way to define uh, cardio-oncology and uh, the definition which probably has the most resonance for patients and uh, professionals alike is that it is the cardiac care of cancer patients. Um, This could include the problems that they are having from a cardiac perspective with ongoing therapy or any cardiac problems they may have had in the past and the role of um, cardio-oncology or a cardio-oncologist is to deal with the cardiac issues and to try and get them through their cancer therapy. Um, the additional point to remember is that some of the cardio-oncology patients also have cardiac problems well after their cancer therapy, uh, many years down the line. And of course, uh, cardio-oncology does encompass these patients as well. Okay, so to put it into simple terms, effectively the prevention and management of cardiac disease in patients with cancer. Uh, Absolutely, and also the uh, long-term management, both the acute management while they're having their therapy and also the late effects management of these patients. And presumably as we've got better as doctors, um, obviously oncologists at treating cancer, uh, presumably this is a rising, increasing problem. Yes, I think that that is one of the the key issues and why um, I suppose the field of cardio-oncology really has uh, been growing exponentially recently. So the uh, advances in cancer care have actually um, nearly doubled survival rates over the last 40 years. And um, by 2024, there will be nearly 20 million cancer survivors in America In the UK, at the moment, we have 2 million uh, cancer survivors growing by 3% a year. Um, If we take a common cancer such as breast cancer in the UK, um, in the 1970s, 40% of uh, patients were alive 10 years after the diagnosis. And that's now nearly doubled to nearly 80% um, uh, currently. So while cancer treatments, um, you know, it's great news that they are more and more effective. It's fantastic, of course, um, for patients. Um, What it does mean is that uh, today's cancer patient very well could be tomorrow's cardiac patient. I see. So that's a really important point, isn't it? And as such, I guess it is a new specialty or relatively new specialty, certainly in the UK. But uh, in one of the pieces you wrote that I'll link to in the British Journal of Hospital Medicine, you say that the, particularly the USA is a bit further down the line in terms of setting up cardio-oncology practices. Yes, I think um, in, in America there are probably more centers that um, do cardio-oncology. But uh, having a cardio-oncology program uh, in America, the uh, 
the, the, the varying types of um, cardio-oncology programs. Some are very high-end, um, some may be a clinic once a month. Uh, I suppose uh, coming to Europe and coming to the UK, um, the realization that uh, these patients probably need more specialized cardiology care has come later. Uh, but I think, you know, we are catching up fast. So let's uh, get into the uh, to the subject proper, as it were, Arjun. Can we talk about the effects uh, on the heart of different cancer treatments? And in your article, you divide it up very nicely into uh, chemotherapy uh, and cytogenic, sorry, cytotoxic agents and targeted therapies, and then uh, radiotherapy effects on the heart, and then the effects uh, of cancer itself on the heart. Perhaps we can start off talking about chemotherapy and the effects that it has on the heart? Sure, sure. So um, I guess uh, the, the field of um, cardio-oncology itself uh, originated uh, probably in the late 60s to the early 70s when anthracyclines were first introduced as a treatment for cancer therapy. And um, it was recognized um, that early on uh, in the late 60s that in some patients there was evidence of cardiac dysfunction. So uh, historically, the rates of cardiac dysfunction with anthracyclines were quoted to be maybe 5%, uh, although with more recent studies, we have seen that potentially one in five patients on anthracyclines could have a more than 10% drop in ejection fraction. And um, there's a variety of uh, potential causes why some patients are more susceptible that um, I'll possibly go into later. But um, covering some of the other commonly used um, chemotherapy agents, um, agents like monoclonal antibodies such as Herceptin or Trastuzumab, which is commonly used in breast cancer patients, uh, while it uh, very much helps with reducing breast cancer recurrence and improves mortality, there is potentially a 5 to 15% risk of left ventricular systolic dysfunction in uh, real-world data uh, and in some trial data. And uh, I think these are the commonest um, agents which are used from the chemotherapy perspective. But uh, what we are seeing in uh, clinical practice, in our cardio-oncology practice, is that the newer agents uh, which are being used for cancer treatment, um, while they are producing even better results in terms of um, cancer survival, um, unfortunately, many of these also have got cardiac toxicities. Um, a point in, uh, you know, an example of this would be checkpoint inhibitors, which are used for melanoma. Um, about 1% of these Patients do have myocarditis, which can be fatal in up to 50% of cases based on the literature. The real-world data would probably indicate that the incidence of myocarditis is higher, although the fatality may be lower. Um, so this is another commonly used drug in uh, melanoma at the moment um, and has really transformed outcomes. Um, other chemotherapy agents um, could be the tyrosine kinase inhibitors, which are commonly used in a lot of hematological malignancies. They're also used in solid tumor malignancies, such as uh, renal cell cancer, sarcoma. And um, there's a threefold incidence of increased risk of heart failure compared to placebo with these agents. There's an increased risk of arrhythmias. 
uh, commonly used uh, drugs in this class are the um, VEGF inhibitors, which are the vascular endothelial growth factor inhibitors, which can cause hypertension in up to 50% of patients. So um, all of these agents, you know, can can cause a, a variety of problems. Um, we, we've kind of touched thus far on cardiac function and on arrhythmias, but um, quite a lot of these chemotherapy agents um, can also cause uh, chest pain, uh, ischemic heart disease, acute coronary syndrome. So if we talk about um, commonly used drugs in GI cancer, which would be um, fluoropyrimidine, such as uh, 5-fluorouracil, capcitabine, um, in up to 35% of patients in some studies, they can cause chest pain and myocardial ischemia with up to an 8% mortality rate um, from uh, cardiac ischemia. Um, platinum-based uh, therapies, which are commonly used in a variety of cancers, in pediatric cancers as well, such as cisplatin, there's a risk of um, 8% for ischemic heart disease. And I guess one of the last um, drugs, uh, chemotherapy agents that uh, we, we can cover are agents that can cause uh, electrophysiological problems, and the commonest being uh, QT prolongation. So arsenic is uh, arsenic agents are commonly used in um, cancer patients, such as in acute uh, leukemias, myelomas, and uh, up to 93% of these patients can have a prolonged QT, with um, 30% having a life-threatening arrhythmia. So from the chemotherapy perspective, uh, a variety of um, different uh, problems uh, that can arise. So uh, covering the whole spectrum of um, cardiovascular disease. Wow, that's that's a very impressive and uh, concerning list. And I suppose it's always a balance, isn't it, between managing those side effects uh, for, on the heart and uh, balancing that against the, the chances of surviving cancer. And I can see why cardio-oncology has grown into such a, an important subspecialty where you really need a teamwork between the oncologist and the cardiologist and the patient, of course. Yeah, absolutely. And I think um, the role of um, cardio-oncology very much is to uh, present before the patient um, the, the, the uh, issues that may occur from the heart point of view. But um, as important as that, or maybe even more important, is to try and get them through um, their therapy. Because you know, the, our aim is absolutely not to say it is too risky from the heart point of view, um, unless that is absolutely the case. We always aim um, in conjunction with the oncology teams to try and get the patient through their, their cancer therapy. And um, coming back to the, the, the question that you asked, I mean, I've covered the issues with chemotherapy, but uh, radiotherapy um, can, of course, have uh, a number of uh, potential problems uh, in terms of, of the heart. Uh, in the acute setting, you can get um, an acute pericarditis, um, myopericarditis-like picture. And in the long-term setting, with um, breast cancer radiotherapy, especially left breast cancer radiotherapy, um, also with therapy for um, Hodgkin's lymphoma, mantle radiotherapy affecting the chest wall, you can have premature coronary artery disease, um, particularly affecting the, the left main stem, um, also the right coronary artery, um, the LAD and the circumflex, all arteries can be affected, really depending upon the direction of the radiotherapy beam and how much of the heart is within the radiotherapy field. And increased doses of radiation are associated with um, increased uh, premature coronary artery disease. And um, one of the other side effects of radiotherapy is valve dysfunction, 
the exact mechanism of this is probably still um, uh, under under debate, but we do see uh, premature valve disease, both regurgitant lesions and stenotic lesions in people exposed to uh, radiotherapy on the chest wall. And in terms of the effects of chemotherapy, Arjun, are these always dose-dependent or are there some reactions that come out of the blue that can't be predicted? Sure. So traditionally, the thinking was, especially with anthracyclines, that um, it was dose-dependent and once you were below a certain dose, uh, things would be okay. Um, for example, previous studies, if uh, they, they quoted that a, a cumulative dose of um, doxorubicin of uh, 400 milligrams per square meter, you know, there's a 5% risk of heart failure, for example. But in clinical practice and as the field has developed and as we've got more data and evidence, um, I do not think that there is necessarily a safe dose that we can say below this level, your heart will be fine. Um, there are concomitant risk factors and genetic susceptibility, which probably means that um, the dose relationship may be a guide, but I don't think it's an absolute uh, or set in stone. And um, with other agents, non-anthracycline agents, uh, this is not necessarily dose-related. Um, if you uh, take into account something like Herceptin, trastuzumab for breast cancer patients, uh, you can have problems um, from the first cycle. Um, you can also have problems in patients who have been on uh, this for some time, uh, especially in those with metastatic disease. So it, it's really, again, probably some unknown factors, um, maybe some genetic predisposition, which uh, uh, causes this problem to occur earlier or at a different point in the cycle of therapy. And just before we get on to, to monitoring patients, particularly with imaging, uh, you mentioned previously about the effects of cancer itself, uh, regardless of any therapy we administer on the heart. Could you talk a little bit more about that? Sure. So, there, I mean, there are common pathways in uh, a variety of cancers, uh, which also may potentially affect the heart. Um, if we think of um, a common uh, cancer uh, such as lung cancer, uh, the risk factors which predispose you to lung cancer, such as, for example, smoking, will, of course, have deleterious effects on the heart. So when uh, there's a patient with lung cancer who then develops a cardiac uh, complication, um, some of the risk factors that cause the lung cancer itself will have had an effect on the heart. And we also know from some animal models that uh, in certain cancers, uh, there is a predilection to affect, uh, that will have more of a cardiac effect or cardiac toxicity. Um, when we measure in animal models, we see that sometimes the troponin is elevated. We also see sometimes that the NT-proBNP is elevated. Uh, again, the exact pathways and mechanisms are probably not uh, fully uh, elucidated. And um, we have not taken it to the stage where we know how we can intervene. But um, there are potential uh, common pathways for cancer and cardiovascular disease. In terms of um, following patients, particularly if we're thinking about left ventricular dysfunction uh, occurring as a result of chemotherapy, uh, echo uh, is presumably front and center. But you talk in your article about the raw rejection fraction number not being particularly helpful in all cases and more subtle measures are needed. Could you tell us a bit more about that, Arjun? Yes, yeah, so 
one of the issues with ejection fraction is, um, of course, it is a very good marker in terms of assessing your systolic dysfunction. It has got a lot of uh, prognostic significance. But uh, one of the issues with ejection fraction is um, we probably need to just uh, take it back to basics and try and understand how we calculate the ejection fraction. So, so with the ejection fraction, um, it's a composite marker looking at uh, a summary of the longitudinal function of the heart, a summary of the radial function of the heart, uh, a summary of um, circumferential contraction, all of these together producing the ejection fraction. And what we see in um, cardio-oncology or cardiotoxicity and also in other cardiac disease is that if the, for example, the long axis function deteriorates, the radial contractility, um, circumferential contractility can compensate. And as a result, the ejection fraction may stay the same, but already there has been some damage to the cardiac function. So in this situation, we really need something which is uh, able to pick up these subtle abnormalities. And um, thankfully, we do actually have such a tool, which is the um, global longitudinal strain. Uh, this is really a, um, a summary marker showing subtle changes in deformation. And uh, there is evidence to show that uh, in cardiotoxicity with anthracyclines and other agents, uh, this, uh, the GLS does go down earlier, and this is also associated with a worse prognosis. So routinely in um, cardio-oncology services, and also it's made its way into guidelines, uh, GLS is uh, incorporated in the assessment of these patients through echocardiography. And just to give me a, an idea and the listeners an idea, how often are you performing uh, echoes on patients who are receiving chemotherapy? Is there is there a sort of a ballpark figure? Are we doing it every week, every month, every six months? So it does depend on uh, the type of chemotherapy that they're receiving. So if we look at um, one of the guidelines that uh, we use commonly in the UK and in Europe, which was the 2014 uh, European Association of Cardiovascular Imaging Guidelines on uh, use of imaging in cardio-oncology patients, uh, if the patient was on an agent such as Herceptin, they do recommend a baseline screen and then monitoring thereafter every three months with echocardiography. And this is... Uh, routine practice for the oncologist. This is not something that um, is done in a dedicated cardio-oncology clinic. The oncologist themselves would be recommending these uh, echocardiograms and it would be the role of the cardiology service in the echocardiogram to really highlight significant changes in cardiac function, which should prompt a referral to the local cardiology service or, of course, cardio-oncology service if it is in place there. Uh, other agents such as um, anthracyclines, the guidelines recommend a baseline screen, which uh, is, a, is a full cardiovascular risk assessment screen, including echocardiography. But um, thereafter, the, the guidelines suggest repeating the echocardiogram at the end of therapy and then potentially six months after the end of therapy. And I think that is pretty controversial because we know from a number of studies that 
anthracyclines can cause problems in left ventricular systolic function many years after the completion of therapy, which is why you do have the late effect services very well developed for pediatric patients who had cancer therapy as children who are managed and monitored well into adult life. And um, we probably, going forward as a field, need to have uh, an analogous type of service for adult patients exposed to such cardiotoxic medication. I see. And in terms of broadening out uh, the tools we can use to determine the patients at risk and then identifying them when problems occur, like ECHO, uh, is there any role for biomarkers? I think you briefly mentioned troponin and NT-proBNP, either as a sort of pre-chemotherapy measure or indeed for monitoring whilst on therapy? So there, there has been um, quite a lot of work looking at um, biomarkers uh, for exactly the purposes as you describe, and the commonly um, explored biomarkers are actually troponin and uh, NT-proBNP. Um, and uh, I guess a summary of the studies would be that uh, troponin um, is most useful in looking at anthracycline cardiotoxicity, and what it uh, does is potentially can um, identify the patients who will have a significant fall in their left ventricular systolic function early. Uh, there's been some work in uh, introducing therapy at that stage, such as enalapril, and in these patients, uh, the left ventricular systolic function, left ventricular volumes were preserved compared to those patients who were on placebo. Uh, but uh, it, the role of troponin has also been explored in other agents such as tyrosine kinase inhibitors, monoclonal antibodies, and also in radiotherapy. But um, the data in this role, uh, in this setting, is less robust. Um, uh, another biomarker, um, the NT-proBNP, is probably more sensitive um, for cardiotoxicity, and uh, in some studies has been shown to predict uh, cardiotoxicity and subsequent falls in. Uh, left ventricular ejection fraction uh, well before the actual fall and in some studies with um, anthracycline therapy has been predictive of mortality at one year as well uh, and uh, apart from these um, commonly used uh, markers uh, there are some newer markers which are used in some of the risk factor scoring uh, screens especially in children such as myeloperoxidase, um, galactin-3, high-sensitive CRP. But the, the last three are very much um, in the research realm. They are not probably ready for prime time. Um, and uh, to, just to finish off, uh, troponin and BMP have also been used in trying to predict radiotherapy-induced uh, cardiotoxicity. And um, th there's some uh, signal that uh, patients who receive radiotherapy, especially for left-sided breast cancer, uh, do have elevated uh, biomarker levels. But um, again, what we do with this information, how we intervene and what the long-term implications are, are still unknown. I want to thank you very much indeed for joining me today. And I'll put your contact details, your Twitter handle, etc., and also links to various papers that you've published recently in the show notes so people can go and find out more.